Hi everybody, this is JJ Kaleo and welcome to Clink. On today's show, we have a very special guest from a company that I use and love, Aaron Lammer, the co-founder and proprietor of Longform. Longform is an app that helps you discover and collect the best long-form journalism around. So if you are sick of just seeing and reading sort of clickbaity stuff around the internet, then I highly recommend that you use their app because it provides really an oasis of just fantastic writing. Uh, they're also wonderful at surfacing old gems like this 1964 profile of Thelonious Monk that I just read, which is exquisite. Um, anyway, it was voted one of the 100 best things in the world by GQ, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention their podcast which also includes some really wonderful interviews from writers like Michael Lewis, Gay Talese, Ta-Nehisi Coates, Lena Dunham, Tavi Gevinson, Ira Glass, and many, many others. So Aaron and I have a nice, long, somewhat rambling conversation over some pretty good bourbon here, um, but I really hope you enjoy it. Thanks. So Aaron, thanks for joining us today. Uh, thank you for having me. Um, what are we drinking? What's your choice, uh, choice of drink? Uh, I requested bourbon, and we've got some uh, Four Roses bourbon. I'll note that the Four the Four Roses had a, had a great uh, sort of vintage logo, and they've they've kind of uh, they've kind of fucked with the formula a little bit here. Yeah. I, don't, I don't love this new uh, I don't love this new bottle, but uh, I still I still deeply enjoy. it. So this Roses. is the small batch. I don't know if that's oh, the difference. Oh, I see. I see. We I kept see. it classy for Keep you. Kept it classy. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm gl- I would be disappointed if I learned that they had abandoned their. Uh, classic uh, logo yeah are you you're, you're thinking of like the yellow label yeah yeah the one that totally i, I always kind of liked i mean four roses is, is a it's a delicious bourbon but it it, it doesn't look like it looks kind of like a cheap bourbon yeah which it looks I kind of like as absolutely a, um, that's marketing some uh, of the beauty of it i think mm-hmm. um i was looking at both bottles and i almost went with that one but i, I didn't want you to think we were you know a I, cheap I, podcast i understand i, I wanted understand. to get you the small batch stuff you guys showed up in that limo <laughs> yeah that uber xl yeah, yeah. for two people um so i want to start i i don't know much about your background beyond long form actually so i did see that you grew up in california that's in, in berkeley that's correct can you tell me a little bit about what you were like as a kid and what the family was like what you're into and that kind of thing um so yeah i grew up uh grew up in berkeley california i moved there when i was about uh five years old um my father is a geneticist um wow and uh but uh, i would say the uh the vibe of my youth i went to a um, very hippie elementary school yeah um i uh used to go to a lot of grateful dead concerts with my father <laughs> Um, that gives you any how old how old were you uh from about five or six on yeah I, that's I, awesome. I went to about i don't know maybe 30 or 40 grateful dead concerts uh with jerry still around oh and yeah, yeah yeah i mean this is uh this was like the 80s so um this was uh i mean not like the heyday of the grateful sure. dead but it, it was it was it was a good time any of like the winton marsalis you know jazzy you know shows? i i can't i can't say that i i okay. totally uh totally remember exactly uh what was what but uh you know i had a uh i had a pretty it's a cool place to grow up berkeley um it's uh 
it was kind of uh, when I was a kid transitioning from pretty freewheeling late sixties, early seventies vibe um, into you know Berkeley's actually a pretty wealthy town nowadays, yeah. much like the rest of the Bay Area. So it was sort of a a, a place of of transition between two different kinds of uh, cultures. Um, and you know, I was into, I was into books when I was a kid. Um, I was a fat kid. Uh, so I was a kid into books. Yeah. I was a fat kid who was into (laughs) books. Uh, you know, my parents wanted me to play sports because they wanted me to be less of a fat kid. But, uh, um, I, I did a little of both. Um, I, uh, played a lot of youth sports. Yeah. So the geneticist deadhead to me is of just fantastic like summary of Berkeley or, or at least how I imagine it. I've actually never been. I, I recommend it. Yeah. It sounds amazing. It's actually a great, like uh, for anyone listening, uh, it's a great day trip. If you're in San Francisco for work or something like yeah. that, uh, go, uh, go, go catch the bar over there. I mean, actually Uber, uh, makes Berkeley a lot more accessible than it used to be because uh, Berkeley only has one or two BART stops. Um, but you go over there, go to go to Cheeseboard Pizza. Uh, it's 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 great, 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 uh, great walking around the campus. Nice. So, outside of the the Grateful Dead shows, what was the home life like, and um, what expectations did maybe your parents have of you, or did the school have of you, and and just kind of how did you feel, I guess, in that context? Um, I, my parents uh, drove me pretty hard uh, ap- academically. Um, they expected me to go to a good college and, and that sure. kind of stuff. Um, and uh, not all of my friends were, like, necessarily on that path. So uh, I always felt like I was kind of like the, uh, the the kid who had to do shit other pe- kids didn't have to do. Yep. Um, but, you know... Uh, paid off I guess in the end uh, I was generally a pretty lazy kid I like uh, I found uh, easier ways to do things yeah I'd say that was like a dominant theme of my uh, life uh, that will probably reappear uh, <laughs> in the story um, you know I like I went to uh, I went to private high school for the first couple of years of high high school and uh, it was very like uh, elite kind of prep school uh, and I, I did not I did not care for it and I uh, I guess I didn't drop out of it but I, I left um, uh, which was uh, surprising at the time because it was a pretty hard school to get into so uh, it was considered kind of a faux pas to leave yeah um, what year um, was this uh, that would have been 1996 um, when I was like 15 or 16 yeah so right in the midst of high school and, yeah you know, yeah. thinking about college and that kind of thing. Well, there's uh, the the school I graduated from is called Berkeley High. It's a it's a pretty well known high school. You'll you'll meet a lot of people in New York who uh, went to it. Uh, and I really wanted to be there. It just seemed like, you know, crazy cool shit was happening there. Yeah, giant parties like, uh, and and really interesting people uh, come out of it. I mean, to this day, like. The people I know uh, from Berkeley High are, are my closest friends and uh, have gone on wow. to do really interesting things. So, any notable people? Uh, many, many notable people. Yeah. Uh, let's see. One of my best friends from high school is in um, uh, Hamilton right now. Nice, <laughs> David. Hello, David Diggs. <laughs> um, a lot of people involved in uh, music. Um, uh, one of my friends from elementary school on, uh, 
this guy named Francis Starlight, who uh, I'm still in a band with called uh, Francis and the Lights. Sure. And, um, we've done a lot of fun stuff. So that, <laughs> that's a high school connection, that that's whole actually, project. We, we actually went yeah. to elementary school together. Damn. Um, so, yeah, like a lot of a lot of stuff like that. Uh, my friend Jake Schreier, who's one of my best friends, uh, directed, uh, has directed a couple of feature films. He did... Uh, um, it's a teenage movie, but um, um, a movie called Paper Towns that came out last year. It was right. like John Cara Delevingne. Yeah, and, so. yeah. I mean, it's, it's all a, over Instagram. <laughs> n- not, um, I, I don't want to sound like uh, braggardly about it, but um, I think it, it's very, like when you're around people who are ambitious in that way and are like all trying to do things, um, it like it certainly like motivated me and inspired me, and, and I actually felt like I was always sort of like trailing behind sure. those guys um, in terms of like people like being in bands and making movies and everything like that. So uh, that was like a really big part of like my high school experience was like kind of kids trying to be adults, and we were like all gonna like make a feature film before sure. we graduated from high school and stuff like that. And that was something you didn't get from the fancy private school. No, no, that was a lot more like do your work, do your work. I mean, yeah. one of the one of the things that was enjoyable about going to a, a giant uh, public school that was a pretty wild place was um, there wasn't as much schoolwork. I mean, you could do a lot less work and still get really good grades. So, sure. in a way, it frees you up to like pursue whatever you want. Um, and for me, that was like a lot of working on a lot of different kinds of art projects and. Um, I actually know most of those people through doing theater, which I'm terrible at. I'm a horrible, <laughs> horrible actor. And actually, I think people were pretty aware of that at the time. But yeah. I just like I just wanted to hang out. I just wanted to be involved with like artistic people and yeah. like, um, you know, like go to cast parties where there were girls and get drunk and that kind of thing. You were yeah. in it for the crew. Yeah, I was totally parties. in it. For yeah. the, I've I've been in it, I've everything I've ever been in. I've been in for the crew. So, yeah. <laughs> what? So outside of the crew, I mean, you clearly you were engaged at, at some level with the content. You know, yeah, absolutely. Obviously into books and music and yeah. whatever else, movies, yeah, very, I'm sure. Yeah, very keenly, yeah. So so there was you know a natural affinity to that stuff. Yeah, what, yeah. what was kind of most influential or what, what which um, medium were you most into um, at that age? I really liked music a lot. I mean, my dad is a... Um, like a kind of an audiophile kind of dude. He had like a amazing collection of like Grateful Dead dat tapes. Um, yeah. Uh, I don't know if you know what dat tapes even are. If they're like a, I, a very specific era. I I I'm I'm kind of a deadhead. Oh okay. I wow. Don't really. Dat was I, kind of I, like they're like the reel to reel type things. That's actually a digital format. Okay. So it's sort of like. Before the, I believe before the CD, after the tape, people were like, "Let's put lossless information onto." It's basically the same thing as like when they used to have like a computer backup that took a tape. It's as if you yes. wanted to record like uncompressed audio onto that. Got it. Um, so it's like kind of like a high density, like a little hard drive basically that can play audio. Um, and that Whoa. audio is stored okay. on a tape, not on a like a solid straight state drive. I think I could be totally fucking wrong about that. Actually, yeah, that sounds. Um, but uh, you know, he had we'll like a, a really great like sound system and and a lot of music. So I was I was pretty interested in music. Um, uh, the girl that I was really uh, like really obsessed with at the time's father at for many many years afterwards also, <laughs> father was a um, 
like a, a music writer had been like a writer for Rolling Stone in the 70s and Got he had it. like a a giant room filled with I don't know 30 or 40,000 records kind of in this like dilapidated garage attached to their house so uh during that period I was really trying to like absorb as much music as I can I mean it, you know this was still pre-digital music so sure. uh, this, there was a lot of it's a lot of work totally. involved with um, getting music. You know, I'd spend a lot of time uh, taping, and and then I think later, eventually, like copying CDs and that kind of stuff. And yeah. I'm a bit of a hoarder by nature, so uh, anything that kind of like you can get engage in a kind of hoarding activity kind of appealed <laughs> to me at the time. Yeah, I mean, it was still a physical kind of tactile yeah. hobby. Yeah, yeah, yeah not yeah. just you know, let's go into the cloud and access. And at that point in time, I didn't really know how, like, I didn't know what I didn't know. I didn't know how deep, like, I I kept, you would sort of scratch at the surface, you know, like, I I remember, like, there would be a dance party and and someone would play, like, Let's Dance. And I I didn't, I mean, I didn't really know who David Bowie was when I was 14 or 15 years old. And I'd be like, oh, let's check this out. And so I'd go in the room and I'd, like, flip through all the records and I'd pull out the, like, you know, inch and a half of David Bowie. And then you're like, oh, my God, like, you know, there's like 10 or 12 incredible records in here. And at that point in time, I didn't really know how many David Bowie's there were in the world. I still don't really know how (laughs) many there are, but it was it just seemed like a like a like a vast like uh, sea to, to fish from. Yeah, and very random in terms of who you're going to find. Yeah. And how you're going to find it. Yeah. And I liked I liked like uh, I liked like local hip hop a lot then too. That was like probably the, the music I was the most interested in and involved in. Yeah. Uh, I just go to a lot of like, like there was, um, there was this group called uh, Living Legends that in, in the Bay Area when I was a teenager that would like throw big like warehouse parties and uh, I was like idolized that shit. They like seemed like so like fucking badass, you know? Yeah. Like I don't, I don't in retrospect love all of the music that was coming out of it. It was like it was a lot of music, like independent music about about being independent was kind of the uh driving force. Almost like a punk ethos. Yeah, yeah, in, absolutely. In and there was yeah. and there was a ton of punk music actually happening sure. in Berkeley. Um, you know, when I was a teenager, uh nine twenty four Gilman was like yeah. a huge, huge deal and all the bands from my high school Operation would play Ivy there. And, yeah. yeah. Like um you know that was like a that was a real that was a, th- a whole thing. I, I mean, was like really... Green Day came out of that scene. Yeah, but Green of... Day Green Day is from Berkeley High, also. Yeah. yeah, Operation Ivy, Rancid, they're all. But I was kind of I, w- I never really got. Um, I always kind of had like a like I always wished like I was more accepted by like punks, but I wasn't I wasn't really a punk, so it was it was kind of a everyone you couldn't have like a lot of different identities. Um, it, you kind of had to like stay in your lane, and I was. Uh, I was doing theater, so that's where I, that's <laughs> you where were I in was. the theater. Yeah, land. I was in the theater land, but <laughs> not, it was you know it, punk. It's, it's cool to be to be in a place with a, a big like a big school like that because even though I wasn't a part of that, like I still would you could still go see like punk bands play, you know, like of kids that were sure. in my high school. So. so you had some exposure to it, even yeah, though yeah. you weren't maybe accepted by that. Yeah, group. and I mean, it was just inspiring. Like that was one of the first scenes that I ever saw where people were like making flyers and like doing shows and like writing zines, yeah, writing zines and, yeah. and like having house part, like crazy week long house parties that like bands played at. And, um, I've always been really like attracted to, to things like that. Like I, I like, like, I think probably the reason I, 
got interested in the internet in the first place when I did was because it seemed like a way to like do stuff like yeah. that. Um, and, and I was always, you know, I, I was not actually like at the forefront of anything like that when I was sure. in high school, but I really did idolize the people who were. Yeah. What were, if any, um, outside of theater, kind of the major projects you were into or latched onto? Um, well, I spent my senior year in high school making a, a movie with Jake Schreier, who who, who did that film, um, Paper Towns, and he has another movie called um, Robot and Frank that came out a few years ago. So we we did for our thesis when we were in high school, we, we I think we may have originally thought we were going to make a full-length movie, but it became onerously clear it wasn't. But we made a we made a movie that was about thirty minutes long, which will sound wildly unimpressive um, to millennials uh, listening <laughs> today. But uh, making a a thirty-minute digit, digital movie in nineteen ninety-eight was like it was very very tricky. What we would do is we. We got this camera and we we edited it at his dad's office. And what we would do is load a bunch of footage into the computer, and the fo- the computer could hold about maybe like two edited minutes of footage. Wow! So we would we would edit a little piece of it, and then we would run it off to a SVHS deck, and then we would erase it, and then we would do the next two minutes. So the whole thing was edited in completely linear order. Um, That's piece by piece. Terrifying. And then we went to this guy who had an Avid machine, um, which Avid you can now get as software for, you know, you just buy it. But uh, the Avid machine was like a room then. It was like a $500,000 device. And he was like a real dick about it. And we were paying him like a hundred. We were like, we had to do it in like an hour. We had, we could, we could only get like one hour. So we like fed all our little SVHS tapes in and he loaded them into his Avid and then like exported the whole thing. And that was it. So, I spent a lot of uh, a lot of my senior year of high school like uh, doing those two minute uh, edits. Yeah, and, and uh, that was a that was a great project. I mean, it was really I was like, yeah, sign me up. Yeah. I mean, that I feel like that's unique in that it got you into the weeds of actually producing this stuff and not just I don't know playing in a band with your friends. It, you know, where it's not just it would be cool if. We made a movie like this, but here's how you actually edit it and go through, you know, kind of the pain in the ass process that's involved, like technically, to make this thing a reality. Yeah, I mean, there's there's always a feeling I have that, you know, you would think with digital technology that now there should be all of these amazing movies that like independent movies at every festival, and people should be able to make incredible art in their backyard for no money. But what really happens, I think, is that people make more stuff and it's not necessarily better. It's, it's actually just sort of easier. And that process of like learning something that's very difficult manually has like a lot of other benefits to it. And it yeah. weeds out people who aren't, you know, the people I know who were making movies uh, in that manner when they were kids are all pretty successful now because they're like people who really can like fight through problems and like right. figure shit out. You learn a lot of skills when you have to, uh, figure out something from the from the guts up, and and even then, I mean, look, it's still digital though. Like it was way harder twenty years before that when you were like yeah. cutting on a Just manually on a cutting flat film or something, steamer or whatever they <laughs> that thing's called. So, um, yeah, yeah, I don't know where I was going with that thought. <laughs> so, I mean, that's a that's a pretty compelling high school scene, and then <laughs> I mean, then you go from Berkeley 
to Wesleyan, right? Uh, yes, I went to, I went to college at Wesleyan, yeah. Um what what was the thought process in going there and you know, then we'll get into that experience. I you know, I don't I have really very little rela- I, you know, actually what happened um I was pretty sure I was going to go to college. Uh I didn't I don't think that was really an option to not not go to college in your, in your family. And yeah. my family had had money to send me to college and yeah, I was a I'm a person who who had the uh, the privilege and uh, uh, the uh, expectation of a liberal arts education, uh, but uh, I went and to- I went to a bunch of colleges. I don't really remember the experience, but I decided I was gonna I would just apply to Wesleyan early, and uh, I got in early, and then didn't really think about it again. And then I showed up at Wesleyan, <laughs> and I was like, wait, this isn't the school. This is not the one I remembered as Wesleyan. Like I think. A different college <laughs> was what I thought was Wesleyan. I think it's probably I, I've tried to figure out what it was. I think it might be like Swarthmore or something yeah, was, was what say. I thought was Wesleyan. But I don't know if I both missed it, messed up what what they looked like, or I actually messed up which one I wanted to go to. But it was fine. But I you you legitimately made a mistake. I had like a very clear picture of like visiting Wesleyan, and then I was like, "That's where I'm gonna." And then when I arrived there, that was clearly a different <laughs> college, and I kind of didn't really That's... remember having visited Wesleyan. But uh, yeah, it was still great. It was a great experience. I mean, that's funny you say Swarthmore because I think of Wesleyan, and I, I've never been. I, I don't really have any good friends who went <clears> there, but I think of Wesleyan as like Swarthmore with more drugs, basically. Yeah. I think I may, I think I wanted to go to Wesleyan and I had just like shuffled the campuses in my mind. Yeah. That's 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 what I like to believe. Okay. That makes sense. Cuz I mean Wesleyan seems more fun to me. Yeah, I mean it, it was fun. Uh and there were lots of drugs there. <laughs> I I can imagine. <laughs> and it also seems like there's some overlap culturally with with Berkeley. I mean, it's very artsy and people are creating and Yeah, you know. I mean, there was there was a real pipeline from my high school to Wes. There was yeah. I think seven people in my high school class um who went to Wesleyan. So yeah. it was it was pretty thick and um you know, uh Francis who I mentioned earlier also was going there. So I, like one of my best friends was going there also and uh yeah, I, I had a, I had a I had a lot of people I knew there already. Nice. And they had not made a mistake in the same way. I don't think so, no. I think yeah. that was just me who made that mistake. <laughs> It'd be funny to have a group of seven kids from the same high school all make the same, you know, giant mistake for Well, it is, it is a weird experience to take a bunch of, like, 17-year-olds around to see, like, who've never been to any college, and you go and take, like, ten of the exact same tour of colleges, and then you're expected to sort of uh, figure out which one you want to go to. I mean, the the experience of touring a college is always exactly the same. Totally, like, it's that same. You have some nerd tour guide. Yeah, whenever I whenever I try to describe uh, like the idea of a canned joke to someone, it's like the joke the the tour the college tour guide joke is the most canned joke format. <laughs> and the parents all chuckle because it's got to be like it's it's both part of the tour, but it's got even like a specific like moment where it comes out like the whole the whole campus tour is just like hitting like you could draw a bunch of x's on the ground and it's like when you walk to this point do this canned joke and you can actually see like it 
I, I always, you know, when you go to college, you see people taking the tour all the time. I could remember seeing people going by, like getting this, like remembering the canned jokes. So that was when it started flashing back and realizing that this was not actually the college I had intended to go you to. You saw through it. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, did that kind of creative scene continue more or less at Wesleyan or, or how did it change? Yeah. If at all. I, uh, started drinking a lot when I was in college. Yeah. Uh, Which wasn't as big a thing in high school. No, I was drinking a pretty good amount in high okay. school also, but uh, it was more like, in high school it was more like at Friday and Saturday night, yep. and uh, when I was in college it was more like seven days a week, so I, I didn't really get up to much. Um, it was a lot of hanging out, um, and I had like a real, I had kind of a chip on my shoulder where I thought that Berkeley was really, really cool, and that I had like had all these cool experiences, and here I was in this small town that uh, yeah, in Connecticut was just like, you know, keeping me boxed in, <laughs> and uh, you know, just like the same like everyone thinks when they're eighteen or nineteen that they're too cool for what what's happening around them. I think, um, and I and I was very, very guilty. Um, so even though I think in retrospect, I was having a pretty good time. If, if you actually were to teleport back there, I would say like, Oh, I'm miserable here. I want to get out of here. Like I'm going to transfer. Yeah. Uh, That was kind of my attitude. Um, and yeah, I did some, um, I did some, some projects when I was in college, but I wouldn't like rank it as a very productive time in my life. Um, I started writing songs then, which was something that I've continued doing myself and um, Francis started writing songs and putting together like a little band. And um, I hadn't, yeah. I hadn't really, I don't know how to play any instruments or anything. So um, that was like a really cool experience for me and, and something where I was like, wow, I'd like to take this. Take you this you didn't at, at the time or you I still, still don't really play any instruments. No. Huh. Um, it's really just a sort of creative partnership where we write songs together. Um, I've, I guess improved a little bit since then in terms of my ability to to work on a computer, but um, I still don't I still don't play play an instrument. Do you sing? No, not no. Very, okay. very poorly. Because <laughs> I've I mean I've I listened to all you know your SoundCloud stuff and yeah, there's obviously vocals and I assume they were you. Yeah, okay, yeah. I guess that's uh, I guess I sort of lie. I get caught myself <laughs> in a lie there. I very very rarely sing. Uh, I, I've my voice appears on a, f- a few recordings, but mostly uh, I've just worked with one, this one person, and it's, it's his voice. Um, Got it. Uh, because I'm pretty tone deaf. I, I think all, all of the recordings of my voice have at least some sort of a, a tuning function on them. <laughs> like, um, I mean, like a you know, like a T pain tuning function. Yeah, yeah, actually. Okay. I mean, um, the that record that I have on SoundCloud is uh, all recorded on an iPhone. So I think all of the vocals are run through a uh, this like kind of ninety nine cent like toy auto tune app because you can you can use on the iPhone you can you can chain apps together so you could run like you can download an auto tune app and then like a preamp app and then run that into GarageBand on the phone. So when I was wow. working on that record, I was like trying to create little like chains within the phone processing chains. I did not realize that. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a feature from like iOS eight on that um it's called uh 
It has a name. Is that unique to audio? Or, or that's yes, just it's, okay. It's a it unique. It's unique to GarageBand because GarageBand as an Apple app is not, um, you know, like a walled garden in right. the way other apps are. So I think GarageBand might be the only app that can actually receive another app. Interesting. So it has like in, I mean, I don't know. It's probably something different technically, but it, API or, or these other API, apps. Yeah. It is an yeah, API. It's okay. an API. Yeah. I mean, it's not a public API. You can't. Right. Build on it, but you can make an app uh, available to play into GarageBand. Got it. Okay. So aside from drinking seven days a week, <laughs> we like not that. Much. In terms of <laughs> in terms of productive activities, mm-hmm. there was that musical aspect. Were you engaged academically at all? Like, did you enjoy your classes? Was was that aspect? Yeah, I did. Redeeming? I mean, to be totally honest, I I think I wasted I. It's my own fault, and I was not a very serious student. Um, I always sort of, uh, I didn't cheat my way through. Like I like stole other people's answers, but I did really the the bare minimum in in many ways. Um, and some of it just it blo- like boggles my mind now looking back on it. Like I'll open a book that I have on my shelf at home, and it will be a book that I bought in college. Yeah. And I was like, I didn't have a job then. I didn't have <laughs> shit to do. And this was assigned to me. This was the only thing I was supposed to be doing, and I did not read just this book. Just reading this book. Yeah, yeah. I I just I, – I don't have a great work ethic, and, uh, and, and I like – I mean, I like to read. That's the ironic part. I was an English major. Like, the things that I was neglecting are things that I, like – later would be engaged in professionally but uh i did i did here and there and even like reading half of what i was supposed to i still read a lot of interesting stuff um i read a lot of books uh, yeah and started thinking a lot more about books when i was in college in what way um i think sort of in the same way we were just discussing like records where you start to understand the contours of how much has come before and, and how like rich I think when I was in high school when I thought about books you, you there's a certain like canon and, and you're like oh yeah there's like F. Scott Fitzgerald right. one F. Scott Fitzgerald book and like two Hemingway books yeah. and there's this and, and To Kill a Mockingbird and you something. think like well I've read like 40 books and there's like 400 books total and <laughs> when I was in when I was in college I was like oh actually the 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 I'm never gonna I'm never gonna get to the end of all this reading and there's all sorts all sorts of stuff that I was not really aware of um, happening uh, both among like writing from other centuries and among like very contemporary writing like I um, yeah I took a class uh, in fiction with a guy named Paul Lafarge who was kind of like a like an early um, McSweeney's contributor yeah. and and that was what was happening then was kind of. McSweeney's was getting off the ground and he was living in, in New York and Greenpoint. He, he would be probably like have a wow. recollection of me if he heard this or anything, but it was kind of my first glimpse of like, Oh, you could like go live in New York. I remember he was describing Greenpoint in class and I was like, yeah, that sounds good. Like, wow. Like, in, in the nineties, cool. this was like maybe 2001. Okay. Like something. Yeah. It, but it was, I don't know when McSweeney's launched, but it was within the first few years of McSweeney's, um, I remember he was talking about um, like how important it was when Infinite Jest came out, and Infinite Jest had only come out within I don't know maybe five or six years then. So it was kind of like the wave of literature that was happening in uh, in the wake of of Infinite Jest, and and it, it, the part of the, that was 
I guess this is the sort of emerging theme here would be like it felt different that like you could actually go meet people who were doing this yeah. and that like there was like a scene and a culture around it. Right. Like this was a guy who was embedded in that. Yeah. And who was there in the flesh in the front of the room. Yeah. He was going to like guys. get in the shitty car at yep. the end of class and, and drive go to back Greenpoint. to Brooklyn yeah. and like go to some like cool bar and he had like dyed hair and like, you know, <laughs> I was going to go home to my, uh, my, weird dilapidated house and he was going to be there and I, it definitely put in my mind like that I could go do that 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 I could right. go be in New York and and be a part all, of this see scene all the shit that's happening yeah right that is meaningful and goes far beyond that absolutely absolutely yeah. I mean I I think continually like if you had asked me then I would have been like well I want to be a, a novelist but I think Actually, what I meant was like I'd like to go hang out with some novelists. I wasn't like I was totally. like writing short stories or like yeah. actually trying to become a great writer. I was just I liked the scene. I, I liked the people right. were doing that stuff, and I wanted to I wanted to be involved. And uh, I didn't really know that there was like ways to be involved that were not like writing the great American novel. Like I thought that was kind of the only way to go hang out with some writers is if you could like kind of hang with them. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so it was inspiring. Yeah. When you, um, so, so is that, so there, there are books, there's kind of that realization. And I was also, I just wanted to know, like a total pain in the ass and that, like, yeah. I was like in every way, like the shitty archetype of a kid who like says he wants to be a writer, but doesn't actually like want to put in any work or write anything. Like <laughs> I would always try and go talk to him after class. Like I was, I was, I was kind of a, a shitty, shitty kid in that way. Like, <laughs> like um, and I'm sure he was just like, oh, I wish this kid would fuck off, like get out of my office. What would you pester him about? I just, you know, it was the same thing. I was like, could we like, could I do like more stuff? Because like I want to write more. And I was like, but I didn't, I wasn't actually doing any of it. I just, I had this image of myself as, um, you know, this like talented, productive writer. And I just, I didn't want to do the hard work of, of it. So instead I wanted yeah. to like chop it up with people and waste their time kind of um in retrospect, you know, uh, there was kids who were much better writers than me in the class, and um, they were actually interested in becoming writers, and I think I was a little bit more of the uh, the poser type. Yeah. You liked the posture of being yeah. a writer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was all, it was I'm a writer. Pretty much all, all posture. Yeah. yeah. Did, did any of that stuff come to fruition? I mean, were you doing anything on the side, short stories, whatever? Not Nothing of quality, no. Okay. No. Well, of quality is not nothing relative. Really low quality. Like I just wasn't doing much of anything. Okay. I was hanging out. Um, I was going to parties. Yeah, you were gathering the material. Yeah, I was. I mean, I was. I met a lot of really interesting people, and and uh, many of the the people who were also fucking around. Uh, like went on like their fucking around turned out to be actually like very good um, my fucking around turned out to not be very good well I mean now you're here with us yeah so but I'm, not, but I'm not I'm, but I haven't written any novels <laughs> yeah that's true um, so I mean by your own account it seems like you were kind of lazy sort of a fuck up yeah a little bit in college yeah. maybe not a fu- maybe fuck up's a too strong word yeah high functioning fuck up right yeah, yeah. Um, but certainly not um, working towards your potential, no. like I would say. No, right. no. Um, following 
college, what was the the plan or the thought process? I had not really thought it through. Yeah. Um, I was, as I said, like real like, oh, this sucks. I want to get out of here. I took a semester. I took a semester off and I lived at home in Berkeley and I had some friends who were going to UC Berkeley and they were so I would hang out with them. Which um, semester was this? So like I guess between my my junior and no my between my sophomore and junior year. I took off like I guess would have been the first semester in my junior year. Got it. And um I actually I think I told people that I was dropping out. I was like I'm out of here and I just I I was I I went back to Berkeley and I was going to maybe transfer to UC Berkeley or try and finish there. And I went to the, I went to like various offices and I realized that it was going to take me like longer, like three or four years to graduate from UC Berkeley. And I was kind of like, Oh, <laughs> kind of like took the like power out of my arguments. Uh, I went back to, to Wesleyan and, and I finished. Um, but I still had that one semester to go because I had taken the semester off. So I went back and actually did that semester at, at UC Berkeley and that was probably like the strangest period of my life. Like yeah. I was, I was living, I was living at my parents' house. I was working at a video store. Yeah, like I was working at my my own childhood video store. And this is sort of post when you were supposed yeah. to graduate. Yeah, so I was like twenty one, twenty two yeah. years old, and I was like making eight dollars an hour at a video store and at your childhood video my store. childhood video yeah. store which was actually like a terrible video store it was like uh, it was at the very end of the um they they had they had fought a hard fight against going dvd so it was still like a primarily vhs stock <laughs> yeah and the this is a fad yeah it was like it was like it was kind of interesting like it kind of prepares you for like what you the same thing that like hanging out with a lot of people in startups like experience when you like everyone closes and it goes out a bit like we were like we were at this video store um like paying the price for someone's bad bet like five years ago against the dvd format and no one really like the only people who were coming in were like weird people who were like really stuck in their ways so it was like people renting like the same children's movie like 10 times in a row kind of stuff and then we had like this really tiny porn section and like, the porn section was like all the problems happened like as a result of the porn <laughs> yeah. section and it was it was a it was a grim time and I, and that was kind of the point when I where I realized that I had like no plan at all I didn't know what I was doing I didn't know what kind of jobs to apply to um, I just I was just working at a video store and like going to college parties with uh, people I met at uh, UC Berkeley um, and. Yeah, I, I, did, I did not know what to do. When did that change, or how did that change? Um, I so I finished. I like I finished, and I, actually, I'm not. I'm still not really positive if I graduated from college. <laughs> like I sent my stuff to. We I sent like Wesley in a transcript, although they never like sent me a diploma or anything. So yeah, well, maybe I shouldn't be saying this on a publicly available <laughs> podcast. But I mean, I don't think long forms. At, th at, at this at this point at this point, uh, it probably doesn't matter whether I graduated from college. Yeah. I like I just I didn't care at that point, and I what I did I didn't want to find out that I hadn't graduated from college, so I never clarified whether I did graduate from college, and I've just claimed that I graduated from college. <laughs> Um, and one of my friends from, uh, from Wesleyan was actually, was from, 
from New York, and um, his brother-in-law had taken out uh, a long-term lease on a warehouse in Williamsburg, um, uh, which is uh, currently uh, today is uh, is a bar called Kinfolk, but oh, at the yeah. time was a sort of a desolate uh, wasteland. This is That's really funny. Two thousand and three, and various people had like lived in it and kind of improved it. But uh, the guy who was living there was moving out. And my friend was like, um, why don't you come like live in this warehouse with me? Yeah. So crashing kinfolk. Yeah. I just, I, I moved there. Um, I remember I came to look at it once before I moved in and it was like pouring and I had not really, I'd been to Brooklyn maybe once I come into the city a few times when I was in college, but the only time I'd only been to Brooklyn, I think once, and I didn't know like geography or anything. Like, I went to Williamsburg, and I thought I was like, I thought we were like really far out. Like, I thought we were yeah. like, kind of like at the end of the world because I didn't know how any of this stuff connected or where the train was or anything. And I'd gone there on a really rainy day, and there was no one on the street or anything. Sure. Um, and e- even on a sunny day, like there weren't a lot of people around there. I mean, it was prior to the point when that area was rezoned. There's one coffee shop fix there, but not much else. So uh, we moved into this, um, it's about a 2,500 square foot warehouse with two floors. We're each paying $600 a month, three people. (laughs) No, it was 2,000, we're paying 666 each. Okay, yeah, that's very appropriate. um, For your hedonistic lifestyle. It did not have like real much heat in it. Like it had one giant heater that was sort of ceiling mounted. And like yeah. kind of right under that was warm. So it was just a it was big drafty really, space. Really cold. Yeah. yeah, we had a we had a roll up door, so we like roll the door up, and um, we had like a ping pong table, and like I we had none of us any money, so like our sort of form of uh, partying during that period would be to like roll up the door and start playing ping pong in the warehouse and just wait for people to <laughs> walk by and come hang out with us <laughs> and drink with us, uh, and uh, it was it was a really good time. It was it was. Uh, it was fun, um, and that was that's how I ended up in New York. And how did you end up eventually supporting yourself? I started. I knew I had to get a job, so I just started applying for jobs. I didn't have really any idea what I wanted to do. I ended up. I think I eventually ended up with like a placement agency, yeah. and I became a personal assistant to this rich family on the Upper East Side. Um, I'd go there every day. I did a pretty terrible job. <laughs> I, can't imagine, I can't imagine the the <laughs> the only real saving grace for me was that like I was like pretty like computer knowledgeable. Um, yeah, I had like I didn't really have any like computer science education, but I when I was a teenager had gotten kind of into like like fourteen point four modems. And like I was real big on like CompuServe and AOL when I was a teenager, like spending a lot of time. Like sometimes I would run up like a two hundred dollar AOL bill, like just going in like AOL chat rooms. Yeah. And um, you know, the skills you needed in nineteen ninety three to like connect to a bulletin board system, like the DOS computer, if you can figure that out, you can like figure quite a bit out in the modern computer realm. Um so they were running some kind of like financial records software. He was like an investor. So 
I think the only reason they didn't fire me was that I could like I could fix most of the computer stuff. Um, it, it was like a very antiquated system also that they had just been running for many, many years. So I would just kind of come in and like do my thing and um, fix the computers when I had to and not do very much else. Um, and what else were you meant to do? I would do, I would do things like uh, respond to emails and I would uh, like pay bills and stuff like that. It, it was, it was very simple stuff. Um, and it was definitely like a, you know, a strange world that like I thought that I grew up around rich people. Yeah. Um, but the rich people you meet in Berkeley, California are of a very different class and like sure. rich people on the Upper East Side. I mean, these people were like tycoon rich people. Um, so, I, you know, I, I was totally unaware of any of this stuff going on in New York. I didn't have any insight into it at all. I didn't know what I was getting into. How long did you do that for? I did that for about a year. Um, and I quit when I got uh, a friend got me an interview for a job, and, and then I got that job and quit. What was that job? Uh, that was at W.W. Norton, the, the publisher. Okay. And so, that, and so now you're actually sort of bringing in this liberal arts education to some kind of career path. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, well, I, you know, I didn't really, like, I wasn't like, Oh God, I'm gonna like. Yeah, I'm really into publishing. It just seemed, it seemed better than the job I had, and I had heard it was very hard to get a job in publishing. So my sure. friend uh, Tom Mayer, hey Tom Mayer, uh, was working at WW Norton. Another friend from Berkeley High, actually, and he was he got me an interview there, and I had you know he was like you know they were interviewing lots of people. So when I got the job. I felt like it was like an accomplishment because it's hard to get a, it was hard to get a job in publishing, particularly without being an intern or anything first. So I sure. thought I should do it, even though I had absolutely no idea what went on in publishing and was completely like behind the curve. Because most of the people that I was working with there had been through like the Columbia um, publishing program or something. Huh. And I like I didn't even I didn't know anything about book publish. I didn't even know what like book publishers did. Like yeah. I knew nothing. And and how did that work out? Um, it worked out pretty pretty well and terribly. <laughs> uh, like I got very good. I wrote a lot of, I wrote and edited a lot of copy. Um, like I wrote. I'm I'm a very strong like book flap writer and like press yeah, release writer. Yeah. So uh, that was your main job to write. That yeah, kind I think of copy. actually I only I, the only reason I got the job actually was that I wrote this like one page letter. I've 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 had a very strong success in, in my life of not being qualified for something, and and this is this is the only advice I will give to uh, teenagers listening. And uh, if you can craft a like a one page that really like sells something, that can take you far in the world. So I wrote a letter to to Norton. And uh, they were really impressed with this letter, I guess. So they hired me over people who were much, much more qualified uh, than I was. And uh, I got, I got, I, I definitely like got into writing. Um, that like writing the back of books is like something I enjoy. Like I, I like that kind of writing. Um, and I edited a lot of cookbooks while I was there. Yeah. Um, it's cool to like demystify a process like that. Sure. Like. Once you've worked in publishing, it's hard to have a sort of romantic view of books anymore because you realize how many like tiny arbitrary decisions are happening in them. Um, but I actually only stayed there for about nine months, so I was I was moving pretty quickly. Do you 
like pick up books now, read the back cover or the flap and kind of judge it on what you know behind the scenes like in terms of what what's going on absolutely yeah so you're more of a connoisseur for that stuff than the ordinary person yeah i mean there's a it's amazing i talked um on on my podcast the long form podcast to chip kid a few weeks ago who's like you know the the greatest um book designer ever and it made me think about like how much these little like tiny assumptions that you make when you pick up a book about like what does this cover mean? What does this like writing on the back mean? Sure. And um, yeah, I think working in the publishing industry, you, you're demystified a little bit, and you realize sort of all of the tricks that go into it, and also how arbitrary the connection between this thing that someone spent years of their life on and the packaging, and the packaging is eighty percent of the experience right. of why totally. whether you buy the book or not. And it's um, so disconnected from their it's original vision. Just disconnected yeah. from that vision, and that would drive me insane if I was writing um just you know you could spend five years of your life and then it's like those um sorry what's the italian woman uh elena ferrante books okay the 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 elena ferrante books have these like terrible like stock art like covers of like women walking down the street hand in hand (laughs) and they're like you know like you could you could be the biggest uh writer of the year and someone would put a fucking terrible (laughs) um but I, I I didn't last long in publishing. Why was that? Um, I got offered a different uh, job that seemed to me like it, I was not getting paid very much when I was yeah. working publishing. It's I about, think I was making publishing, right? about thirty thousand dollars a year, um, which actually seemed like a lot of perfectly fine amount of money to me at the time. But it's a low enough money amount of money that someone can offer you a job <laughs> right. that does not pay very much, and it will seem like a lot of money, and so. I got offered a job that paid $15 an hour um, as a uh, bouncer at the knitting factory. <laughs> Not really so a bouncer. I was from... working work the front door at the yeah. knitting factory. And I was like, oh, I could do that. I was like, I kind of was doing the math in my head. And you could work kind of a lot of hours because the knitting factory was open until 4 a.m. So I thought oh, I could just basically work there at night. And that that would be all I'd have to work. I think I worked like three, three or four nights a week. Yeah. And uh, and it seemed like a good time. It seemed like be like an adventure. So I I did it. That's what that's where I left to go. Dude. That's I've never heard that transition in my life. <laughs> a lot of people were like, don't. A lot of people were like, that was the stupidest shit you've ever done. <laughs> like you could work at publishing for like, because there's people at Norton. Like my Tom Mayer, who got me the job, is is still there. It's like a real family company. Like people will work thirty or forty years there. So. I could have just stayed there for my entire life, and I, I left, and I don't know. That that seemed like a bad idea to many people. So how did the, the bouncing gig it wasn't I'm, I don't want, It was not really bouncing. Was, I was working the front door. I was like the guy who yeah. like, checked I mean, IDs sure. and stuff. Yeah, yeah. There aren't that I do tell people I was a bouncer, but that's that's a, a certain uh, form of uh, puffery. So how, did, how did you get that offer in the um, first place? My friend, uh, my friend Gnome, also from Berkeley High, who's now a um, it's like a mafia. attorney. Uh, his girlfriend at the time was a bartender there, and she told me um, that they were looking for like a, a bouncer. And um, like I'm, I'm a pretty big guy. I was a little, I was heavier then than I am now, even. So I was like, it seemed seemed like I could do it. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think I had like I had like 
I don't even know what I thought I was going to do, but I, I had the idea in my mind that I needed to be like having my days free to like work on my like creative sure. shit. And so like I would, thought it would be a great idea that I would like go like be a bouncer at night. What actually would happen was like <laughs> I would like work till 4 a.m. and then they would shut down the bar and we would we would do a lock in. We would lock the front door and then, you know, uh, Everyone, Everyone hangs out and yeah, drinks. Yeah, we would yeah. drink for two or three hours for free, and then I'd like catch the train home at 7 a.m., like completely drunk. I was living out in South Slope, and then I'd sleep in like late and waste the day and go back to the bar. <laughs> <laughs> so you're uh, like 23, 24 at this tw- point? Yeah, twenty, probably about 24. When I was yeah. That, yeah. And a lot of the people I worked with there were older um, and had been there for a long time, like really incredible New York people. Sure. Who I wonder where they are now, and I hope they're alive. Are they not uh, still at the Knitting Factory? Well, the Knitting Factory isn't really the same thing it was. Yeah. Um, like, there was that Tribeca Knitting Factory, which was three floors, three floors of live music every night. Um, you know, like, probably more acts playing there than anywhere else in New York City at the time. And then it was always fucked up. They were always broke and different people coming in and out. And then it closed down and then it got relocated to Williamsburg. But it's I don't think there's really okay. any continuity between the two knitting factories. So Maybe this, there's a little bit. This was the Tribeca. This is the Tribeca. I did not realize that. Okay. This is on um, uh, Leonard Street, I think it was on. Um, yeah, it was the sort of the like the old school knitting factory before it moved. It was actually not the oldest school though. There was one on the Lower East Side before that, but uh, this was the one. It was like they would have a big. They had a big venue in the front, and then in the uh, middle level there was kind of a medium venue, and then there was like a little tiny bar venue in the basement. Yeah. So you'd have these weird confluences where there would be like, like I remember like MIA was playing her first show in America on the top floor and there was like a like ska night yeah. under it and but everyone had to go through the same door so i would be like checking the ids and it was it would be like like you know jay-z's coming in and then it's like a bunch of like long island ska right. kids like whose parents drove them in and they would all be uh, there on the same night so i mean i it sounds to me i don't want this to sound insulting but almost like a cooler Webster Hall or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or maybe just yeah, th- that kind Webster of a, Hall. Yeah, 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 that kind of vibe. I mean, it wasn't as big as Webster Hall. Like, even the biggest venue, I think, only held about 400 people. Um, but, yeah, that kind of a vibe. I would yeah. say, like, actually what happened was it was so poorly run that all of the sm- like all of the best people who worked there, like the bookers, all went to Bowery. Like, Bowery Presents it. wasn't really a force yet. It was just Bowery. Interesting. And so the best people went to Bowery, and then they kind of turned Bowery Presents into an empire that yeah. kind of took, in my opinion, the place of the Knitting Factory. So then they, you know, Music Hall Williamsburg is Bowery also. Yeah. Eventually Terminal 5. All of those kind of shows, like Knitting Factory was like a strong competitor to them, but they, the people who had their shit together would just leave and go to Bowery Presents. Got it. That's a good section of like New York history, musical history that I knew nothing about. Definitely, yeah. I mean, I don't um, follow music as closely now, but like that was, I do still follow music pretty closely, but that was like a, that was a ripe time for live music in New York for sure. So how did that eventually end and I I assume transitioned into something more corporate? (laughs) Um, Not really, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Shit, I don't remember how I stopped working there. I guess I just 
one day stopped working there. I don't, I don't, I don't remember what the end of my tenure there was. Yeah. Um, but I started getting some ghostwriting gigs um, through Norton. So my the editor I had worked for previously, despite us having a fairly acrimonious uh, breakup when I left. Yeah. Uh, Norton hired me to write a rewrite a book. I won't say the name of the book here. Uh, to rewrite a book that had been a fair amount of money had been paid out for it, and the writer was just not able to get it in on deadline and had a lot of obligations. The, this was the the public author. The public author, not another ghostwriter. Not another ghostwriter, and so. Um, ghost I, we I wouldn't have called it ghostwriting at the time. I was project editing it. So I basically ah, took this book like that. that was kind of a mess and not done, and I took all the original research and I rewrote the entire book from start to finish. So I wrote like it was a four hundred and sixty page book in yeah. about Damn. four months. Um, it was intense. I got really bad carpal tunnel while I was doing it. And did you do it by hand? Or, uh, no, I was oh, okay. typing, but okay. but yeah, I have I still to this day have pretty bad carpal tunnel problems. Okay. Um, uh, so yeah, I, I did this book, and it seemed like a ton of money to me at the time. I think I think it was ten thousand dollars to rewrite the book, and I was like ten thousand dollars, <laughs> like I'm set after I do that. I'll just bang this out right now. And so uh, yeah, I did that, and uh, the book was a New York Times bestseller. No way, it was like a, it was kind of a success. So. After that's that, so crazy. After that, and someone I, else's name is on it. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's, I haven't talked to her for a long time, and uh, and it was not something I was interested in. It was like an international business book. Yeah. Um. So. Oh, I hope I don't get. I, uh, yeah, I haven't said what the name of the book is. It would be pretty hard to figure this out. Um. So, uh, after that, I did a few more books, none of which were as successful as the first. I thought I had like a. I thought I was like. I you was, had the touch. Yeah, I was like, I'm a genius. <laughs> I'm, <the best. laughs> like, I'm a I, ghostwriting prodigy. Uh, yeah, I was. I was also like, I don't know anything about international business, and I'm like, uh, you. Know, I would go on the Amazon page, and they're like, this. The writing is just so insightful, and I was like, oh, that's me. Um, but it, it wasn't. It was not me. I mean, once I really came to understand. What had happened more, I realized like how it had become a bestseller, and it was it was not because of me. Um, but I did a few more books after that, none of which were made as much money. And then I slowly realized that getting paid ten thousand ish dollars to do whole books was not a great deal. Yeah. Um, so I, but I, I did that for a while. I think I did that for three or four years. I was I was doing ghostwriting wow. stuff. Yeah. So you, I mean, you just kind of fell into that. Yeah, definitely. And I and I don't I think basically I didn't want to have a I didn't want to go to an office. I didn't want to have a job. So yeah. I liked even though it was a terrible deal by the hour. I mean, one of yep. the times I like time tracked it and I realized I was basically getting paid minimum wage. Yep. Um once I cuz it takes a lot a lot of hours to do a book. Um but I liked not having a job that I had to go to or people to answer to. The so. the autonomy and yeah. yeah. And 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 is that so did that overlap with the knitting factory experience? No, this that was like after. I think that might have been how I ended up quitting. Probably. Yeah. I think maybe I did it for like a month, and then I was like, Yeah. I think I need to work more hours on this book and not stay up <laughs> drinking all the Guys, time. Guys, I can't drink until seven. Yeah. I have an international business book to write. Yeah, yeah. It's it gonna was, be a time. It was, it was a tough. It was like a tough confluence. <laughs> um, 
and I was living very different worlds, pretty different life than the people I was working with. I mean, the people I was working with at the knitting factory were living pretty hard. Um, but I mean, really involved in really interesting stuff. I remember like one of the people who, who would come drink at the bar. One, one of the bartenders was friends with, um, a guy who was a musician who I always thought was like this really kind of wild looking person, but I'd never heard his music. And then, uh, later I realized it was, um, Anthony from Anthony and the Johnsons would wow. always come, was always drinking there. And it was, it was a scene. It was like all sorts of people coming through. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I did the ghost rating for a while and I had a few other gigs and, um, I started becoming more interested in doing stuff on the internet. So I kind of took a few like web, uh, web designy classes at, uh, took a class at the new school. It was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, it was all like uh, the guy was like the the people in the class would be like, "What is Finder?" And I realized it was like very it was kind of adult continuing education, yeah. and it was not going to be it was um, not cutting edge how that how that got learned. So I um, uh, I started trying to teach myself that stuff a little bit, um, make basic WordPress site kind of stuff. Yeah, and and when did the the idea for long form kind of come about? So so. I mean, if we're looking at it in chunks, there's Knitting Factory, there's sort of the ghostwriting era, and yeah. then the long-form era. Yeah, pretty much. I yeah. mean, after I took that that course, I was trying to, like, think of websites to make, um, and I had, a, like, a, I had a real idea, like, yeah, I'm going to, like, I'll have a... Making make money on the internet, or I'll do that, and I I didn't really have any idea like how any of that stuff was done at all. Um, I met a few people who were like successful in that in that realm. Um, like uh, I was still working with Francis and the Lights at that point, so we were trying to get that off the ground. We had put out a few EPs, and the band signed um, a record deal with a company called Normative. Uh, that was owned by a guy named Jake Lodwick who um, started College Humor with some other people and started Vimeo. And so that was like the first internet person I ever met, like the first person who like worked on the internet that I ever met. And uh, he had a few people working for him, a guy named uh, Justin Wallet, who's uh, still a friend of mine who was, um, he had a website called uh, Muck's Tape that was like this really cool kind of like make your own mixtape site. And those were the first people I ever met. I mean, I, it seems crazy now, but this, you know, this wasn't that long ago. I didn't know anyone who could even make a website at yeah. the time. And, uh, I kind of, I was like, Hey, I want to do that. That's, that looks cool. <laughs> um, so I very rudimentally r- rudimentarily, uh, tried to learn just how to put up a website, just basic HTML. Um, and I would ask those guys questions, and you know, it, it, if I had known enough to be embarrassed, I should have been very embarrassed. <laughs> but I, I didn't even know enough to be embarrassed. Um, I put up like Francis and the Lights's website. I think was the first website I made, and then Longform was maybe the second or third, probably. Yeah. So how is that idea swimming around? You know, wh- where did that come from? Well, um, Max Linsky, who I co-founded Longform with, um, is a good friend of mine from Wesleyan. He had been living in Florida um, and was like editing alt-weeklies in Florida. And he moved back to New York. He's from New York. Um, 
and we had like we had an ambition to do a project together. We were, I think, both kind of looking for something to do. Um, we uh, we went to Nicaragua with uh, his future wife and my current still girlfriend, um, who I'm engaged to, um, and fiance. Fiance. Yeah, I, I haven't quite gotten there yet, but um, and. We were just kind of like kicking around ideas and we started talking about like we were, had both gotten really into Instapaper and yeah. we were both like, man, like it's so cool. But like, how do you how are we going to find how do you find stories to put an Instapaper? Like, it's so hard. And he, I, like, I actually would always kind of lean on him because he had he had worked at Alt Weekly. So he kind of knew he knew a little bit more where you could find stuff to read on the Internet. Like he knew like, oh, like. Um, you know, the uh, Miami All Weekly, they've got these crazy stories. Like, so he, he, we had kind of like a little loop of people who were sending around articles to, to Instapaper. Um, and uh, I don't know, we just were like, we should put up a website that has all these articles on it. And that was basically the entire seed for, for the site. Yeah. And so, and so you just did it. I mean, no, we actually, that was many months before we did okay. it. So it was like, we had that conversation. We were like, yeah, we should do that. Yeah. And then we, I mean, I don't even know. It was a pretty long time. Um, we tried to, we, I don't know if we tried anything else, but we like, we had many things that we were going to do. The fact that we did that one was like, I have no idea why <laughs> that one happened and the other ones. Oh, I've uh, spilled my bourbon. Yeah. I mean, it looks. It seems like it's it just seems hanging like it's out. Like not even really soaking in here. <laughs> uh, let's see. I was. Uh, didn't, I was reading. I like. Did you smell spill something on another podcast? Like I've one interview. I've spilled things on many podcasts. Probably. <laughs> I think. I think I read an interview where there was like a notable. <laughs> Like I was interviewing so and so, and I spoke <laughs> twice during this interview. <laughs> there we go. Thank you. Yeah, I think you talked about it on like the product hunt. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That was. Uh, I think we we did a um, we did like a clips show of long form podcast for the hundredth one, and we were nominating the funniest mo- the things funniest things that had happened in the show, and there was one point where. Um, I was interviewing uh, Natasha Vargas Cooper and she was talking about going to jail and how like she was in this cell with all these women who were talking about giving hand jobs, (laughs) prostitutes giving hand jobs. And I was like, do like really like people pay for like hand jobs? That seems like kind of, and then like basically right as the word hand job got mentioned, I just like audibly spill like liquid directly on the microphone. So. I was uh, that's my my previous spill story. Um, where were we? I don't even remember. We were talking about how long form oh, became how it got a reality. Going. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, I looked at it mostly as like a like an exercise of putting up a website. Like, um, yeah. we did it in a weekend. It was like based on word like a like a WordPress template. So like, we got the, I downloaded the WordPress template, and then I like went through and kind of like edited out all of the like styling and tried to get it back to like a real white white spacey design, yep. and then like. I mean, it was, you know, WordPress was a lot harder then. <laughs> it, was, it was tricky. Um, a lot of CSS. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was kind of like learning, like I had I had the um, the CSS manual 
so I was like, I had like had lots of uh, like little post-it notes in my little CSS manual, and I would go and like look up <laughs> CSS tags and uh, go edit my uh, WordPress site, and uh, I think we did it in about two days, and then launched started on Friday, launched on Monday, I think. Oh wow! Okay, so you got it up pretty quickly. I mean, that's yeah. It was. It, it, I mean. It was pretty rudimentary. Sure. Like once I figured, the, the hardest part for me was figuring out how to embed the the Instapaper button. That was my <laughs> that was my triumph was realizing that you could embed this Instapaper button and it would save the article directly uh, without you going to the page. Yeah. So when is this like two thousand nine? Yeah, I think two two thousand ten. I think. Maybe. Okay. It was like right around when the iPad came out. I remember. Gotcha. And yeah. what was the reaction i mean was it a slow build because I, I feel like i've seen articles about you guys it, in 2010 it can't no it took off pretty quickly yeah um max do jack schaefer who was writing for slate at yep. the time and like um he wrote an article about it maybe a day or two after it launched no and way sent a bunch of traffic and then i think we had fifty thousand visitors the first week probably and uh you know it came down again and sure. we had to build back up but it was enough people that it was. We were like, oh, we should. You were we should off take to the races. Serious. Yeah, yeah we, were, we we were pretty into it. Yeah. Yeah, I I read that article and I, I think he says he had a great memorable line, which was um, <laughs> I'm sure you'll remember it better than I will, but you know he likens you to a newborn baby. <laughs> <laughs> Not you specifically, <laughs> yeah, yes, but yes. the product. I do actually look kind of like a. a large baby. <laughs> people have described me as baby like. <laughs> You know, and he, and it was it was like just because it smells fresh and giggles doesn't mean it'll turn into something beautiful. But yeah. I think this will. You know, basically, he's a good, he's a great, great writer. Yeah, good guy, good guy Jack Schaefer. And it has. Yeah, I mean, you yeah. Know. No, I could have never imagined uh, that it would be that it would uh, reach so many people and and uh, be meaningful to people's lives. Yeah, I mean, does this? So you know, going through your background. Obviously, you know you're you're talented and engaged, and um, there there is substance there. I I don't think anybody would argue, but you also didn't have a cla like classic ambition, um, and you seemingly like just stumbled from one thing to the next. Does long form feel like an accident in that sense, or does it feel like I don't know more destiny than accident? I think it does feel more like destiny. Yeah. Um, I think it, you know, I, I've always, as I said, like wanted to be a part of something and wanting to work on, on projects that I thought were cool. So um, I probably should have been more focused earlier and like done more things. But um, this was the kind of thing I wanted to be doing. Yeah. And uh, now that it's now that it's happened, actually, I'm, I'm kind of hungry to do more things. Um, uh, I'm trying right now to sort of shift long form around a little bit so that I can do it and something else because I don't want to stop working on long form but many of the the functions of long form we have other people working on now and we where we have kind of a team in place so um, the main experience I've had was okay this is what this is the kind of thing I want to be doing like rinse repeat like yeah um, let's do more of it yeah because a lot of what you learn is pretty cross applicable to, to other things um, I, I've learned a lot of different skills and um the podcast has been really fun which i totally credit mac to max because i did not want to do a podcast yeah um he he is the 
the godfather of the podcast, and I was the reluctantly dragged along. So how did that come about? Because that's a a pretty important component of the long-form brand. Yeah, I mean, Max Max wanted to do it from very early on, and to his credit, I did not see it. I I thought, and this is probably a good lesson about the internet, is when you think that that, that a ship has sailed, that's actually like the best time. Like I was like, oh, there's already so many podcasts. Like who's going to give a shit about our podcast? And it seemed like that to me because I like hang out with a bunch of writers in New York. It seems like there's sure. already a lot of podcasts. Actually, like I think we got in at the right time when there weren't that wasn't that much competition. Um, and a lot of the people we've had on the show, even who are pretty big names, have never been on a podcast before, you know. Gay Talese was on our show. I think that was the first time Gay Talese was on a podcast. You yeah. know, Michael Lewis, I think we were probably the first podcast Michael Lewis has been on. Um, there was just kind of a wide open um, world for that stuff, and now it's a little bit more crowded, I think. Um, but so Max just said, like, let's do it, and we like we had I had a I had one USB mic, so our plan was basically like let's. Um, <laughs> Plop we just, it we, yeah, we just plopped it. Like we just plopped it in the middle, and not only did we plop it in the middle, but I, I didn't really look up the settings. So I think I only had it like one. It was only going one direction. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I didn't even get the the unidirectional one in the middle. So the fir- the first few episodes sounded fucking terrible, and. I actually, I remember like I, I went home and my girlfriend was like, this show is really bad. <laughs> <laughs> she was like, she was not soft. So, there was no soft touch at all about it. She was like, you're kind of embarrassing yourself. Cause I also was pretty bad interviewer. And, um, I like, I didn't really at the time know how to listen and ask questions at the same time. So I would just sort of go through all of my questions and not like, pick up on anything sure. that someone said um i hadn't trained myself to be like engaged uh so it was, it was it was tricky um i think i was probably of the three hosts the worst out of the gate um and only my ego probably like kept me alive as a host that i was like not acknowledging that i was not very good at it. <laughs> um but i think over time um we all improved yeah i mean i I don't want to insult Max, but I, I feel like in some ways you're the stronger interviewer these days. Well, thank you. Thank you, sir. Max uh, won't listen to this. So. I'm I'm a pretty competitive person, so that's, I think, served me well. I mean, I have tried to get better. Um, I think we all have, like, skills and weaknesses. Um, like, I, I think I'm one of the better interviewers in terms of, like, being able to get, like, people who have kind of like a – non-traditional writers or people who've done weird shit with their lives. I do pretty well with them. Um, I think Max is a more uh, empathetic, emotional Mm. interviewer. And I think Evan is a better um, interviewer about journalism. I think his interviews are actually more useful than than the rest. More actionable. Yeah, I think they they actually get into more of the the, actual practicality of of doing the job. The process. I think it's a good mix. I mean, I'd actually recommend it to anyone who wants to start a podcast. Um, If you have a rotation, A, it allows you to do weekly podcasts without killing yourself, but uh, it also creates a sort of a a diversity of, um, I mean, I shouldn't really say diversity when it's three men. <laughs> three white, three white men hosting a podcast, but we're really diverse within the white man who hosts a podcast yeah. realm. Two went um, to Wesleyan. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Other other than the total lack of diversity there, um, 
uh, I think it does create a show that's more varied and, and um, different people have their their favorites or or whatever. Yeah. Um, and and that's how I think about podcasting is that it's not a medium that requires people to listen to every episode. We're only expecting people to listen to stuff that like engages them or they're excited about. So yeah, I mean, most of our audience listens to some percentage, but not all. I don't hardly anyone I think listens to all the episodes. So. Well, on that note, um, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Really great yeah, to have you. I've, I'm sorry for going long here. No, I think <laughs> we, I want to be respectful of your time. So, um, well, this was great. Uh, thank you. Hi, everybody. Thanks for listening to Clink. This podcast is run by Haymaker, a New York City PR firm that works with fast-growing tech companies. You can check out more episodes by subscribing on iTunes or by visiting haymaker.co slash clink. We're also on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash clinkpodcast. And if you enjoyed this podcast, you'll probably enjoy our weekly newsletter, which can be found at haymaker.co slash newsletter. And if you're in the New York City area, you might also enjoy some of our events, which can be found under the Tech Press Meetup page at meetup.com or at haymaker.co slash events. Thanks again for tuning in.